Well, good morning. It is a, a pleasure to be with you and to delight in and celebrate grace alone. I was thinking about our, our topic for this session and thought of, uh, remembered a story uh, that my wife shared that when she was in college, when her roommate Emily would be slow to wake up for those super early morning classes at, at 8 a.m., you know, super early, sluggishly hitting the snooze button, ready to roll back over, hard to pull yourself up and, and out of bed, my wife would speak a, a word of encouragement to her, there's grace for people like you. It's a, a phrase that has endured through our marriage and has been used Sometimes tongue-in-cheek, and at other times as gospel encouragement, because that's what we need, not just at a, a one-point time in history to hear the good news of the gospel, to turn from all vain ideologies, to turn from all worldviews, and to see Jesus for who he is, and, and repent of our sin, and trust in him. We, we do most certainly need that. But we need that grace. We need that gospel news day in and day out. Because we are bombarded. We are bombarded with other gospels. We are preached at with other messages, all pointing to our own sufficiency, all pointing to our own ability whether by our sheer force of, of effort or by some intrinsic value, we are, are told day in and day out that, that we are enough. That all that is needed for this life and whatever conception of the next is found within us. But friends, that is not the gospel. That is ultimately no good news. It is no good news to look to ourselves because there are Monday mornings where we are sluggish and slow to rise because we face hardship and difficulty and suffering and in our most honest of moments know that we are not enough. And so we need grace. We need something outside of ourselves to help us to indeed save us. We need grace alone. Now this understanding of, of grace alone that we're addressing uh, this morning, it goes far back beyond just the Protestant Reformation. Indeed, we'll begin considering uh, the greatest theologian of church history, St. Augustine of Hippo. It was him and, and his writings that really are articulated uh, in, uh, after the, the time of the apostles, the closing of the, the canon, this view of God's grace, that uh, it is his unmerited favor in which we trust, uh, that it is our, our only hope for this life and the next. Augustine ar ar articulated this uh, view of, of grace and his opponents, namely Pelagius, argued that that such a view of grace, especially when, when Augustine wrote, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Right? 
Grant, uh, command what you will. God, just tell me whatever it is that you uh, require of me, whatever obedience is necessary. Command what you will, but grant what you command. Pelagius argued that such a view would lead to moral laxity. That if all is just thrust upon God to do it, then that will give free reign for us to, to go and sin more and more, to, to do whatever it is that we please, because, well, <laughs> God will give, will, will give what he commands. This is Pelagius' argument against Augustine for his view of grace, uh, that, that God will provide the very thing that he requires, that he will, will draw near to sinners to give us what we need. And instead, Pelagius, like so many after him, have argued that we must strive by some kind, some variety of an ascetic life, that we have to be disciplined, we have to put in all of the effort that God might find something pleasing and worthy of saving within ourselves. Such a, a view, it, it continued on beyond that time of Augustine and Pelagius and, and their debates, this semi-Pelagian view of, of grace that, yes, God does initiate, he, he does offer salvation, and, and yet we must add something to it. We have to do more to merit our standing before God. Such a, a semi-Pelagian view continued through the Middle Ages to where you have Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, teaching grace plus, as we've just heard in our, our entry into that, that time period, as just led us as peasants. Grace plus, it's not enough to, to hear and receive the, the saving work of God in Christ. We have to do more. We have to add to his, his saving grace. We have to give ourselves to acts of, of penance. We have to uh, pay for these indulgences. We have to pray to Mary. We have to go on pilgrimages. We have to do all these good works that God, he might, might maybe just possibly find something within us that is desirable to save. This grace plus gospel, which is no gospel, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of justification. This is at the heart of what the Protestant Reformation was about, what the gospel is about. Doctrine of, of justification. How is it that one is made righteous before a holy God? Understanding that, that we are racked with sin. Understanding that, that we are bleak and, and hopeless in this world because of our, our very own depravity. Look no further than a toddler. We know how selfish and prideful and vain we are. How is it that, that sinners like us could have a right standing before a transcendent and holy God? How could that even be possible? This is what justification is after. How is this possible? How can we have such a standing? Surely grace alone was insufficient. Surely there has to be something that I do because that's how we're wired as 
humans, as people, I have to do something. I have to rely on myself. And all the more in our present day, in the rise of the modern self, I have to be my own God. Surely I must act if I am to be right before God. That's, that's what the church, Roman Catholic Church taught in all of the, the structures that developed in the 16th, 15th, 16th century, all focused on this view of justification. Yes, God moves by his grace, but you have to work and act to increase and, and supply to it. I think this, it's summarized well in this statement from the Council of Trent, which comes as a, a counter-reformation after the, the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church seeking to address the perceived heresies of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the Reformers, captures well the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on, on justification, one that stands to this day. So the Council of Trent issued this, this statement among many, If anyone says that the justice received, the justice received from God, that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, grace plus, grace is received, justice is received, but that justice is, is preserved and increased before God through good works. If you do not agree with this, but... That the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of their increase thereof. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed, condemned, a heretic. If you say that you are justified by God, by his grace alone, and that such justification is not preserved and increased, by good works, the Roman Catholic Church says, you are anathema, you are accursed. You are not a Christian. You are, are not following the, the teaching of the church. Conversely, if what you teach and hold to be true about what God says about justification is that he justifies sinners by his grace alone and that works are fruits of that justification, signs of that justification, you are accursed. You are anathema. This is what Rome taught, that the reformers were reacting against, and what the church of Rome continues to teach to this day. And so it is into this setting that is focused on your own earning, your own works, how much can you do to appease a holy and Wrath-distributing God. What can you do to assuage your just condemnation? Enter an Augustinian monk who, as you can imagine, in that setting, in that religious milieu, is plagued by guilt. Who felt that he could never confess enough who would sit in his confessional thinking up every manner of sin to confess it and always 
gripped by, by feeling like he just hasn't confessed enough sin, that he just hasn't done enough to appease a wrathful God. He felt that this God was always and perpetually angry at him for his sin, who was plagued by what he termed anfektugen, this kind of depression because of this guilt and, and feelings of anger from a holy God. You can feel the bleakness and hopelessness and perhaps can even resonate with it yourself. Like, I just can't do it. I can't please him. I don't feel the love of the Father towards me, but only know the depths of my shame that gives rise to fear and the burden of guilt before such a God. This is what Luther felt. But thanks be to God that diffused that quickening ray. Luther articulated so well the right understanding of justification. How is it that we are made right before a holy God? How can this be? It's because he who made him to, who, he who knew no sin made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That is how God makes us righteous. We are declared righteous by God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. In his perfect holiness, his sinless perfection, as Christ became incarnate, took on flesh, and lived the obedience that none of us can live, willingly, even joyfully laid down his life in place of sinners. He was our substitute so that we get his righteousness and he gets our just judgment for our depravity. He was made to be sin (laughs) that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is the hope of the gospel. This is not gospel plus. This is just good news grace alone. It is by Christ that we are saved. His righteousness becomes ours as it is received through the means of faith. The instrument that this is applied to our lives is by faith. This is God's unmerited favor. That that is his grace, his unmerited favor. It is not that he looks upon us and finds anything worthy of saving, and says, oh, I like this one. Sure, there's a little inkling there that, yep, that's redeemable. I'll save this one. But instead, he looks upon all of us in our guilt and sin and freely saves us by his grace, by his unmerited favor. And underpinning all of this, underpinning his act of grace that Luther helped the church reclaim and proclaim is a view of God's love. It's a view of God's love. Listen to Luther. It says, the the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. We know this from our experience and can see how 
People have developed such a, a view where, uh, of God based on our own interactions, right? That you find your spouse desirable because of something within your spouse, right? That love rises seeing something desirable there, but it is not so with God. It is not so. He does not see something desirable and set his affection on it, but instead his love creates that which is desirable, The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. It is because of his love that he sets his grace upon us. That he would look upon us to redeem us by grace alone. This is the the good news of the gospel that that Luther and the reformers articulated and, and heralded. That we celebrate and rejoice in. But our authority is not in these men. It is not in the Reformed tradition. It is not even in Augustine. We look to God's word to find such truth. So let's pivot and look to what God says. So we'll do a cursory overview here of how the whole Bible is pointing to this reality that God moves to redeem sinners by his grace alone. Go through a number of, of references here. If you're a note taker, don't feel the burden to, to capture it all. I'm happy to, to share notes uh, after the fact here. So let's dive in. What does God's word say about this? How can we have confidence in Scripture alone that God moves to save sinners by grace alone? And so... We begin in Genesis. Genesis 3.15. In the midst of curse, God speaks a word of promise, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking curse here to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first statement of the gospel, the proto-evangelion. God promises in the midst of curse that one day he will provide a son, offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. God will do this. He will so move and act. Very, at the very beginning, at the very onset, in the midst of curse, God spoke promise that he would move by his own unmerited favor to undo all that has been done. Not only that, He moves in grace towards the man and the woman in 3.20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. A statement of faith that that Adam trusted the promise of God that life would come through this woman. Life would come because God so promised it. But not only that, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Because God promised and warning Adam, telling him not to eat the fruit of the tree, that on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But did that happen? No. (laughs) They did not die on that day, but instead, a substitute died. A sacrifice was made to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. An animal died in their place that they might be covered by garments of skins. God's unmerited favor in the midst of curse and sin and death. 
Fast forward to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God speaks yet again a word of promise, this time to the moon-worshipping pagan. Abraham, nothing desirable or worthy within him to redeem, to make a promise to, and yet God, by his own initiative, tells him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." unmerited favor. Abraham had done nothing, and yet God set his love on Abraham. God made a a promise to him that he would be blessed and be a blessing. And this played itself out through Abraham's descendants as God redeemed them from bondage to slavery in, in Egypt. And yet even this was an act of God's unmerited favor. So we read, in Exodus 20, 1 through 2, the preface to the Ten Commandments. Here it is. Here's what you have to do to be righteous and holy before a holy God. How does it start? The Lord's saving work. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, Keep these commandments and statutes and rules. The indicative of the work of God always precedes the commandment. That's how God works. It is his divine initiative to save sinners that then overflows in, contra counsel of Trent, the fruit of good works. The signs of justification, of being in right standing, of following in faith-filled obedience. It's all that God has called us to. Not because of anything that we do. Not because of anything Abraham and his descendants did. A point that God makes clear in Deuteronomy 7. 7 through 8. It is not because of Israel. Because this people was so great and, and so desirable that God set his love on them, that he redeemed them. No, but they were the least. And so he tells us it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It is God who has so moved and acted in, in history at that very moment in time in the Exodus to save his people, not because of anything desirable within themselves. So when we fast forward to God's new covenant work, We should not expect it to be any different. We should not expect that with his old covenant people, he acted and moved to redeem them through his own initiative and promise, summoning them then to respond by faith and obedience to to then in the new covenant say, well, (laughs) that was for them and now for you and, and Christ, well, you need to work harder. Pull those bootstraps on up. No. No, he's going to operate in the same kind of way, extending grace and calling for obedience. And so Romans 3, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No obedience to the law will result in justification since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, through the, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We're justified by his grace as a gift, not by anything that we do. On your birthday, you don't, you didn't do anything to be born. And as you celebrate another year of the Lord's kindness to you, you don't do anything to earn a gift that someone would give you. It's a gift and it should be received as such. We are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's how that exchange, our sin propitiated by Christ, by Christ's death and resurrection, which is to be received by faith. Why would this be the case? Why would God so work in this kind of a way to give his very own son to redeem a rebellious and wayward and sinful people? Why? To show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He, God alone, is going to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. But that... How how can a righteous and holy judge let the guilty go unpunished? How can God be just punishing lawbreakers according to the law and also justifier, making the unjust now just? How can he do this? How how can God be holy, preserve his holiness, and and yet do both things for the one who has faith in Jesus? Romans 5, 6-11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Not like the minuscule godly, not for like the potential godly, not for those who sort of sometimes on their best days, like Sunday mornings, display some semblance of godliness. No, no. Christ died for the ungodly. And this is unfathomable. Why would anyone, let alone God himself, do such a thing? After all, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But this is not what God has done. No, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
It is his unmerited favor alone, his grace alone that would justify sinners. Because we were dead. We contributed nothing. We added nothing to this. It is because Christ died. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. That's it. Full stop. We've been justified by his blood, not my own effort, not my obedience, not my striving, not my ability to persevere, not even my faith. It's not because of my faith that I've been justified. I've been justified because of the blood of Christ alone. But much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, oh, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Because Christ did not only die in the place of sinners, but he rose again victorious. Hallelujah. He is risen. So much more now shall we be reconciled, saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice, Paul continues in Romans 5.11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is how we've been made right with God, how we've been justified. How as wayward and rebellious and adulterous of a people we are, we have been made right before his sight because of the death and resurrection of his very own son. Adding nothing to it ourselves. Guilt is punished. Justice is served. The holy God remains just. And the guilty are justified. He is just and the justifier because of the death and resurrection of his very own son. Last, we come to the, typically would be pronounced the coup de grace, the coup de grace, the, the pinnacle of grace, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Which if you are unconvinced by this point that God moves to save sinners by grace alone, don't know how you can read this passage and argue otherwise. Paul makes it resoundingly clear, saying, but God, but God, not but God and our own striving, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive together in Christ. By grace you are saved. You have been saved. And it is by his grace that you have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through your faith. By his grace. Not, and a little bit more, right? How does he conclude? And this is not your own doing. 
You're not contributing anything to this. It is but God who is showing his great love, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You, you, there is no position of pride in the Christian life. <laughs> the Lord saved me. <laughs> Man, I am God's gift to the church. <laughs> what a joke. There's no position for boasting. It is all of grace. It is all a work of God. So apart from just this good news of the gospel, this good news by which we have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved on the last day, what bearing does this have on our lives? Is this just like a theological thing? Like, okay, like this is just kind of like some nuance here. Like surely Roman Catholic Church, like they would articulate it this way and you know, the academics, they can kind of parse this out and kind of have their, their footnotes and their volumes of books that are debating this back and forth. Like, is this like just a theological thing? Like, no. <laughs> no, this radically transforms our lives. All of life is changed by Christ. And insofar as we fail to press into that, fail to push the carpet of the gospel into the corners, we're failing to walk by faith and obedience to Christ. We are not following as disciples, learning to obey all that Jesus commanded. That's what he calls for disciples, not just to learn what it is that, that he taught, but learn to obey. <laughs> There's life application needed here. So seven applications of how this changes and transforms our life. And the first flows right here out of Ephesians 2.9, that none would boast. Friends, we Christians must be the most humble people there are in the world. Humility must characterize us because the thing that we proclaim, the, the message that we hold out contra the world is that it is not up to us. It's not our own doing. It's not all about me or or what I've done. If nothing we do merits our salvation, not even our faith, well, then, then we must be marked by humility. Right? Truly, we are saved by faith alone, as we'll hear. Though it's not because of our faith that we are even saved. We are saved by the substitutionary work of God in Christ alone. So we we must be marked by humility in all of our relationships and contexts. Humility. Not only that, but second, it's twin sister of gratitude. Humility and gratitude. What do you have that you did not receive? If the most important thing in the universe, the most important thing in your life has come from outside of you. How could you not be grateful? <laughs> that, that the Lord has set his love on me? 
while I was dead in my sin. And that's redeemed me that I would have a hope, not just for this life, but the one to come. (laughs) How grateful. Not just in church, not just for the gospel, but gratitude ought to mark us in, in all of life. That's why it goes hand in hand with humility. And as we are humble and grateful people, that moves us in compassion and love to evangelistic zeal. You see, like this, how this moves us to evangelism, how grace alone is a motivator to to hold out such grace to those who are striving in vanity with no hope. And it's not from a vantage point of pride of saying, oh, the Lord saved me, and well, I know the exclusivity of Christ, though therefore you ought to listen. It's like, no, no, I'm a beggar. I don't have found bread. Come and eat. We're all, you're all beggars. Come and eat. Here is where the bread is. And everyone prays this way. Like, praise evangelistically this way, right? No parent prays for their unbelieving son. Lord, would you, uh, not even would you, would my son change the logical processing and would see the objective claims and rational consistency of the gospel and believe? No, that's not how we pray. We pray for kids. God, save them. Save them. Because it is by grace alone. So we're moved in evangelism and compassion and love because we too were dead and are eager to see dry bones brought back to life with us. Fourth, grace alone creates a gospel culture. Creates a gospel culture. In church, in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your Work relationships creates a gospel culture. Because if you've been shown grace, you ought to be quick to show grace to others. So that in your small group, you can be confident as you bear your soul, expressing the, the hardest and most painful things. You can do that because you know that you will be received and receive in return grace. In your marriage, the, the biting words and the, and the arguments are eradicated because of grace. Because you know of how much you've received. And so how, why would you not then turn in such grace towards your spouse? Listen to, to Luther again, kind of drawing on this imagery of marriage. He writes... Christ is full of grace and life and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now, let faith come between them, and sins and death and damnation will be Christ. And grace, life, and salvation will be the souls. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things that are his brides. 
and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And, and if he takes the body of the bride, shall, how shall he not take all that is hers? If this image of marriage is pointing to these realities of the gospel of God's grace alone in Christ, how transformative should that be, husbands, for the way that you regard your wife and wives? Likewise, how completely marriage-altering should this be for how you respond to your husband? Grace alone creates this kind of gospel culture. It's not one of striving. If it were gospel plus, it's like, well, y'all show you some grace, but you got to do more. You got to do those dishes every night, right, to make me happy, right? That's a gospel plus. That's a a non-gospel culture. Grace alone does the opposite. Fifth, good works. Grace alone frees us to good works. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. When doing good deeds is no longer the basis of our justification, we're not wrapped up and consumed with doing good in order to gain God's favor, then we are wonderfully freed because those works are not our God. So we can give ourselves to good works because our our hope and our confidence is in Christ, not in our good works. So we we don't have to do good perfectly, but we are gloriously freed to fail splendidly as we try to do good things. It's wonderfully freeing because we don't have to do it just right in order that God would find us acceptable. And so we can adopt children. We can provide counseling to non-Christians. We can build homes. We can care for kids in single-family homes. We can do that joyfully, pouring ourselves out like a drink offering because our ultimate hope is not in those things. Because God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. So we ought to, because of grace alone, give ourselves eagerly, joyfully, tirelessly to good works. Sixth, holiness. Holiness. Grace alone creates holiness. Listen, uh, this was the Pelagian concern. That if you teach and profess and hold to grace alone for your salvation, you will give way to licentiousness. You will give way to, to all manner of sin. You will create disciples who will not be godly. But they will say, I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I please. Fortunately for Pelagius, Paul kind of anticipated this one. Romans 6 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you who have died to sin still live in it? Listen to to Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
talking about this very thing, about how we are called to holiness because of the costliness of God's grace. Bonhoeffer writes, cheap grace, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Because of the great cost of grace alone, we are motivated to pursue the very things that the Lord Jesus has called us to, the life of discipleship that the Lord has summoned us to. So we give ourselves not to earning, but to effort that we might be like Jesus. By faith that we might grow up in the full stature of manhood in Christ Jesus together. Seventh, assurance. Assurance. Grace alone creates assurance. You can rest secure in Christ because he saved you. Do you see this? If it's grace plus, there is no grounds for assurance. If I have to supply and add and ensure the preservation of God's justifying work in me by my good works. Well, today I like, oh, I'm doing good, but tomorrow maybe I'm not. But it is not so in the gospel. Grace alone is commending to us assurance that you can know that Christ has saved you. That Christ is not now seated in glory at his Father's right hand with the daisy saying, oh, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. As we waffle back and forth through difficulty and sin and growth and sanctification, 
as we waffle in our feelings of assurance, our feelings are not the grounds of our justification, nor our assurance. Christ alone is. Grace alone is. This is our firm foundation. Grace alone is the bedrock of God's saving work in your life. So, Christian, you can have assurance and need not be ravished by uncertainty. This is God's will for you. So, friends, what do we do with grace alone? We come. We come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Friends, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Return to the Lord, friends. Return to the Lord that he may have compassion on you. And to our God, for our God will abundantly pardon. There is grace for people like you. Grace alone. Father in heaven, we praise you that you have saved such a wicked and despicable and sinful and adulterous people like us, like me. Lord, none of us would ever conceive of redemption in such a way. It, it is a foolishness to the world. And it grates against our own desires to be God. But oh, what sweet and good news this is. That while we were sinners, while we were dead, Christ died for us. Not only that, he rose for us. What good news. And we praise you for it, O oh God. May we, may we live lives that are in accord with this gospel that the world may know. It is in Christ's name alone that we pray. Amen.